emergency caesarean and we'd have to go and get this stuff out of the fridge and it'd be four degrees it's Celsius. It's quite cold, yes. And you inject 20 mils of four degrees Celsius in someone's back, they shiver. Mm. And um, so I was t- teaching all the registrars, I was saying, you know, as soon as you know you're going to have to top someone up, go and get it out of the fridge and just walk around with it in your hand, mm. try and get it. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, welcome back, Graham. Nice to corner you again. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Um, once again, uh, we should probably give a bit of uh, have a bit of discussion about where we are for people who are listening, so we know when what was happening when we recorded this. So we were in the middle of no, we're near the end of July in uh, Western Australia, which is experiencing a little bit of a bubble from uh, the rest of the world, where not life is pretty normal. But um, yes. I think the the rest of the world is um, not quite so normal. Victoria is undergoing a bit of a, a um, pandemic, uh, second wave, and the, the, you know COVID is uh, taking over over there. What else is going on, Graham? I can't remember. Well, Trump, I mean, Western Donald Australia is an interesting. Stuff it's an interesting and, um, place to live. It's they say it's the second most isolated capital city of a state in the world. What's the most isolated? Uh, Honolulu, I think. Is it in terms of uh, yeah, distance from there to another big city? Yep. Um, and so. Uh, it has that uh, that benefit geographically of um, of it's harder. Yeah, potentially. And no one, no one really wants to come here either. So no, they don't. They don't. <laughs> so unless they work in the mining industry or um, mm. they're from here. So um, I guess that's go- that's good. But uh, I don't know. I'm. How did you manage to get here, Roger? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not really sure. That's a long story. I, I, I bet. Not. <laughs> Better not take up the whole podcast. Um, My family were Tasmanian, and were they? They, yeah, they were. I oh, was right. born there, and uh, they they left when I was very small. Uh, economic migrants, they're called. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I, I couldn't get a job as a doctor in the UK, so I was just looking for a job somewhere else in Australasia. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, mm. it, was, it was quite random. I just met someone in a, in a tea room who said, uh, uh, gave me a phone number for um, Joyce O'Hara. Oh my goodness! <laughs> I phoned her up and I said, oh. I wanted to go somewhere interesting. Can you send me to Kalgoorlie? And she, I think she just about fainted because she has trouble sending all yeah, locals. no one ever wants to go to Kalgoorlie. <laughs> Joyce is still there, I believe. She's it. No, someone told me she retired. Really? Yep. Wow. <coughs> She's an institution. Yep. <coughs> was. <laughs> she was, yes. Yeah. She <laughs> retired now. Scary. <laughs> <laughs> she was scary. She used to scare all the other yeah, animals. Yeah. She's about four foot eleven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she ruled with an iron fist. Yes. That's the only way to keep the order. Yes. Yeah. Okay. She uh, was an efficient administrator. All right, so I'm going to chuck out a uh, something something uh, medical. So before everyone sort of turns their podcast off, <laughs> um, I've got a case scenario for you. So you're in theatre, Graham. You got a woman comes up with severe preeclampsia. She needs an emergency cesarean. Her blood pressure is really high. Hundred let's, let's make it 180 over 110. Um, so you do a spinal, and you lie down, and then she starts shaking all over. But she says she's really nauseous. And you, the blood pressure cuff won't work. Then she says she's got a headache, and then she feels sick. And then you, you're like, um, you, you tick, or your assistant looks at you and says, um, "Do you want me to start the phenylephrine? What, what should I start it at?" Mm. What are you thinking? I, I feel sick. Yeah. What are you yeah, thinking? I'm thinking uh, she's got a very broad differential for her, uh, her constellation of symptoms at this yeah. time. Um, the the one that I'm worried about is uh, a hypertensive crisis as part of preeclampsia <coughs> or eclampsia. Yep. Yeah, even a tremor could be, I guess, a seizure disorder. 
Yeah, so she's just, mm. but to you, she's still conscious. She's just shivering a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, I guess the, the scenario I was trying to paint is that um, uh, she's got severe shivering, and that's really interfering with the safe management of her because um, she could be hypotensive from your spinal. She could. And that's why she's nauseous. Uh, and so you need to give her phenylephrine to fix the hypotension. Mm. Or she could be hypertensive, and if you start the phenylephrine, uh, without knowing what the blood pressure is, you could make things really bad. Mm. And you re- so you really want to know what the blood pressure is, but because she's shaking so much, you just can't get a blood pressure. Yeah, I mean, that's I, when you should have put an outline in. But you it, know, that it's always easy in absolutely. But also, you can actually just put your finger on the pulse and, and blow up the cuff and blow up the cuff. Yes. And well, don't don't make this podcast too easy. No, no, no. But I, I <laughs> but but this happens not infrequently. Yeah. And that's probably why we're talking about it. Yeah. Uh, so. Um, People will probably know what the topic is because I'm probably going to put it in the title when I put it, when I post it. <laughs> hey, did we have a quiz with the last pod, podcast? Um, or have you given out the answers subsequently? Yeah, we probably did. I can't remember. Someone did answer it. So if anyone wants to see the answer, it is already on the website. Good. But um, who who was it again? It was oh yeah, it was a, it was an French anesthetist who was a uh, he was a serial killer mm. and an anesthetist. <laughs> that was the trick: <laughs> a serial killer or anesthetist. And uh, it he was, was both. both. Yeah, there you go. So I tricked you in there. Um, I can't even remember his name now. Jean Pierre, probably. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just being discriminatory. <laughs> now. All French people are called Jean Pierre. That's not true. Um, so, yeah. So we're going to talk about shivering under neuraxial. Mm. Um, but having said that, this topic is quite relevant to other types of shivering as well. So, which is uh, the other common places are in uh, any, any recovery nurses who are listening. You know, shivering is very common in recovery when they wake up from their general anaesthetic. And I think it happens a lot, um, not infrequently down labelled as well. Um, so we're going to talk about the different reasons for it and, and that sort of stuff. I thought um, I did it, and the reason why I chose this topic, I did a um, talk on it recently to, the, to our department, which I tried um, tried to follow all my um, uh, give, uh, points on how to give a better PowerPoint presentation, which is where every single slide is just a picture and there's no words. <laughs> it works well if you can remember what you're supposed to say. <laughs> Most of the time I'm like... Oh, it's fine if I just write the talk the night before. It usually goes pretty well. I've done that on, with old talks and I've pulled them out a year later and I've gone, I can't remember what this picture's about. <laughs> anyway, uh, a, that doesn't really come research, across very well are, are, are you a researcher on this particular topic? Did you actually do a thesis on this? Yes, I was yeah. going to mention that. So yeah. the background, why did I get interested in this? Well, um, I'm not sure if any of these people are listening, but I, we did a, um, when I used to work for uh, Fremantle, Hospital as well as King Edward. We, I collaborated with Ed O'Loughlin, uh, Will Fellingham, and helped out as well. Nick Brown uh, down in Rockingham and um, Mike Pake here helped uh, write it up. We did a study looking at um, uh, use of prophylactic on Dadstron to try and prevent shivering after spinal anaesthesia, or CSE actually, uh, during elective caesareans. And uh, <coughs> I think back when I was a uh, research fellow, so this is when I was uh, in my final year of training, I read a study about on Dancitron for um, patients having orthopaedic surgery and they used um, a, they gave them a dose of uh, IV on Dancitron before they did the spinal and they decreased the, the incidence of shivering from 30% to 10% or something. And I thought, oh, that sounds really effective. Mm. Well, we should have a look at that. So that's why I got interested in the topic. Bad news is it didn't really work here. So we didn't show that it, it didn't seem to change anything. Uh, it was a multi-centre study though, wasn't it? Yeah, so we did... <clears throat> the most of the patients were recruited at Kalia Hospital, mm-hmm. which is closed now. I think it's an aged care facility, um, and um, there was quite a few patients who were recruited down in Rockingham as well. 
So I think Will Fellingham and Nick Brown did some of those uh, for us. So thanks, guys. And um, I think we had 100 patients in each arm. Yeah, and basically we showed that um, if you were having a standard anaesthetic, which included um, a CSC, which included intrathecal fentanyl, um, heavy marcaine, um, it didn't make any difference. There was about 40% shivering in both arms. So we gave them Mondansetron or placebo, and no one really knew what they were getting, and that there was no real difference. Mm. Um, probably the intrathecal fentanyl does it has, it has some anti-shivering um, action, and so that might have been the difference. Uh, a different might have been related to the fact that our patients were females and having caesareans, uh, but also they already had one anti-shivering drug, so giving another one on top of it didn't seem to make a difference. And so the orthopaedic patients in the original study, were they uh, for elective joint replacements? <clears throat> I think it was just a catch-all. Mm. So um, it was done in Turkey, and I think <clears throat> anyone having any sort of orthopaedic procedure, which is presumably lower limb, mm-hmm. under spinal was... was um, was eligible. I can't actually remember much more than that. Mm. And it was a, it wasn't a very big study. It was more sort of like thought provoking. It just sort of triggered us to think about doing it in our patient group. Yeah, I think research is very, very interesting <coughs> because the devil's in the detail. Yeah. And little things like the use of fentanyl mm. probably has implications <coughs> for the overall efficacy of the additional intervention. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so that mm. made so I, I I think our study was good because there is very few people in our setting who wouldn't uh, use intrathecal fentanyl when they're doing a spinal for a caesarean. Mm. So there's no point in us doing a study where we used where um, the patients only had marcaine like they did in Turkey because I don't think that would have gone uh, got across the line. Yeah, and and it makes a huge difference the use of opioids mm. in spinal blocks because it covers the visceral pain. Yeah, so improves it, improves the block actually yeah. decreases nausea mm. intrathecal fentanyl and. Um, and obviously helps a little bit with shivering too. Mm. Shivering is a one adverse effect of a um, that some women experience during uh, spinal, but it's not the only thing. Obviously, there's pain, there's failed blocks, there's itching, there's um, nausea, there's sedation, there's all these other sort of things. So, I was going to talk about that a bit later about balancing. Uh, you know, you can try and prevent or treat one side effect and cause another. So you've got to sort of balance that in your mind. Mm. So it's anyway, amazing how often they complain about the. Tremor though, or the shivering. Yeah, it is quite relevant. So, mm. <clears throat> I thought. Um, so, as part of that, that study, I then did um, um, a master's of clinical research at UWA with um, with Ed, and we uh, had to do as part of that we had to do a thesis, and I had to, so I had to write a thesis on shivering under neuraxial, which was like a nightmare to be honest. <laughs> in the end, I had to ask Tim Pavey for two weeks leave, and I just had to come and sit in the office here at King Edward and try and write it up. Um, that was the only way I could get myself to do it. Um, was Tim obliging? Yeah, he was oh, fine. he's a good man. Yeah, because I hardly ever go overseas to conferences and stuff. I was never taking any of my de- development leave anyway. Um, and so I finally knocked it off. But um, as part of that, I had to actually like write, you know, learn myself and write up all the physiology and the mechanisms behind shivering mm. and stuff. So, so the interesting thing, uh, I guess, so the incidence, most studies and what we found in our patients anyway, is that the incidence is around 40 to 70% under neuraxial block. So it's quite high. Mm. Often it's mild, but um, in the women who it's where it's severe, it can a be distressing for them, and b or b cause us lots of grief. Like I was explaining there, but having trouble measuring blood pressure or oxygen saturations, um, just yeah, just trying to do the monitoring here, you know, especially when you've got a patient who's got a vasopressor running and the blood pressure is all over the place. It's um, quite important to know what's going on, and if um, if you can't 
do that because they're shaking so much, then you'd probably need to do something about it. <coughs> yeah, it happened to me yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Hence, I, I need to put the finger on the pulse. <laughs> Emergency <laughs> case this morning, I had to come and take over. I, we had to give some um, tramadol, and we'll talk about different drugs. We had to give some tramadol because we couldn't measure the blood pressure mm. in the SATs. Um, do you want me to do some talk about some boring physiology? Yeah, I think so. I, Look, I'll try and spice it up. It's not. It's not easy. <laughs> I, I, I I have a stock standard method of uh, explanation to women, <clears throat> um, but I always. Um, Point out that I don't know for sure why the shivering occurs. Yep, and and my 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 explanation has to do with heat loss from vasodilated blood vessels in the lower part of the mm. body under the influence yep. of a sympathetic blockade from the spinal. Yep, and the return to the brain of cooler blood. Yep, which um, in, um, prompts the um, thalamic response of shivering, but I don't know whether that's true. So I'll try and summarise for everyone. I just think the. Um the mechanisms. Mm. So I'll try and make it sort of simple to understand. So the most common reason, so there's three main things that contribute to the shivering. The most common reason is the patient's core temperature does drop, so they do get hypothermic. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's some patients, so that's the most common re- mechanism. And that is because, as uh, you were saying, Graham, the spinal block n- blocks their sympathetic nervous system from, you know, probably the nipples down mm. if they've got a good block and they vasodilate and they lose heat and of course they're also stuck on the table and they can't uh, get up and go and get some jumpers or turn the heater on so they can't do anything behaviourally to fix that and so therefore they just lose the heat and then once it gets below a certain point that triggers the um, shivering response in the human um, but there are some other mechanisms which have been shown to be uh, contributing as well, and that, and, and that is that, which I didn't know until I had to write my thesis. So one is also that <coughs> there are thermoreceptors in the central nervous system, uh, but also in the periphery, but there are, there are quite a few in the spine. And so when we inject as an aesthetist, we're injecting solutions into the neuraxium, and, you know, so you know, two or three mils of solution when we do a spinal, but... Um, between sort of probably 5 to 10 mils with a CSE and you know up to 20 to 30 mils of cold solution when we're doing an epidural top-up because we're the, the solutions that we're injecting are about 21 degrees Celsius, which is significantly lower than 37. Mm. Um, that actually also triggers a, a cold response. And so um, without a doubt, patients having an epidural top-up shiver more than patients having a single-shot spinal. They seem to. Yeah, they do. Mm. I think there's, um, there's lots of observation data that's, that's truth. And then the other thing, this is a small group, but the, there is, an ins, there is a um, known association of women who have la- uh, epidural labour analgesia have a higher incidence of fever or uh, high, high temperatures. And so it's not infrequent that you'll have someone shivering really or shaking really badly on the table and you measure their temperature and it's like 38.1 or 37.9. So that's not hypothermia, but they are shivering. So that's not a completely understood condition. Mm. I think it's still being teased out, isn't it? Yeah, no one really understands it. I read it. something today about being a local anaesthetic effect, but uh, yeah, so I have people to go don't back really and read that again. Going on there. Mm. So, so the most common cause is hypothermia. Patients are cold, <clears throat> but those other two things are contributed as well, and so you've got to tease that out. Um, and then the other important thing to, to note um, is that the receptors involved, or the, or the part of the nervous system that controls thermoregulation in... in um, Humans, probably all vertebrates, um, 
evolved from the same part of the nervous system that um, the analgesia and the pain pathways um, exist in. So that's why they are very closely linked. And if you think about it, it's a, it's called that, that process of evolution is called co-adaptation, where they just use, where organisms use an existing uh, you know, thing, the nervous system, and then they adapt it for, for controlling something so else. So specialised sensory yeah. cells. Yeah, and, and that makes sense. So mm. if you think about it, when we check our blocks, which is um, you know, checking for uh, analgesia, we use ice. Mm. So we're not even... You know, we're not cutting Because that. we know the same nerves, mm. the same nervous system pathways are uh, involved in measuring or, or sensing temperature are involved in pain. Mm. And almost all of the drugs that we use to stop shivering are analgesics. The only one exception I can think of is the 5-HT3 antagonist, but serotonin is involved in, um, in uh, analgesia pa- yes. and pain. Pain, so, pain modulation. <clears throat> so the, mm. the, the cell level as well. So, and we'll talk about all the different drugs. So there's multiple crossover with pain and temperature regulation. That's probably all you need to know, really. Mm. I don't know. Otherwise, you could delve down, you know, you'd be like um, going down the rabbit hole and um, the, what's that... Um, Story, Alice, Alice, Carol, Alice, Alice in Wonderland. Wonderland. Yeah, you get dragged into a, you, you you can get dragged into it, and mm-hmm. before you know it, you get really deep. I thought that was pretty concise. Yeah, so mm-hmm. that's all I try and remember. Um, what are the pharmacological? So we talked about the drugs. What are the pharmacological classes of drugs that can be used for stopping shivering? There's quite a few. So you said analgesics, so opioids. Yeah, so opioids. There's lots of opioids, obviously. Um, Paracetamol, I imagine. Yeah, so that probably helps with fever, although there's uh, conflicting evidence. I think they had a, they did look at a study where patients were, um, had, I don't know if they looked at shivering, but they looked at the patients who had this um, you know, high temperature related to labour analgesia, and they gave them paracetamol or placebo and didn't seem to drop the temperature. So I don't know whether it helps. Okay. But it's interesting, but it's probably worth a go anyway. Those medicines that have both opioid and uh, effects on noradrenaline, serotonin reuptake, like... Tramadol? Yep. <clears throat> um, probably COX uh, or NSAID, COX inhibitors or NSAID medications. Yeah, that might help with the fever ones. I'm not sure, actually. But the, cl- uh, the other classic ones are we mentioned, I mentioned before, um, 5-HTN thread, HT3 antagonists like on Danstron. Um, and the other classic Bethanine. one is, um, Bethanine is an opioid, I guess, uh, the alpha-2 agonist, so clonidine and dexmedimetomidine. Yes, we were going to do one a podcast on dexmedimetomidine, but basically um, we haven't got around to that yet, so watch this space. But yeah. um, that's like clonidine, basically. Yes. It's shorter acting. Yes. And then ketamine works really well, um, and so does magnesium. For shivering. Yep. Mm. They're all, some work better than others, but those are all, all those drugs have anti-shivering. And there are some other ones as well, but I'm not going to mention them because they, I don't think they're um, available in Australia. Um, but there is a, whole, uh, a few others. Um, so the other point I was going to make, and I think I started making it earlier, was, was using these drugs or medications. Uh, we will talk about other things other than medications as well, but using these drugs, you can either use them as prevention, so you give them to women in the hope that it will stop them from shivering. However, the problem with that is is that just about all of those drugs we've mentioned, they all have side effects. Yes. Sometimes... Uh, the side effect might be worse than the disease. Like if you have like very, very mild shivering that you can only just see mm. and then you give someone a drug that makes them hallucinate like ketamine, <laughs> yes. they'll, be like, they'll be like, whoa, thanks. what did you do that but for? No thanks. thanks. Yeah, or you give them mm. something that makes them super sleepy and they can't remember the first six hours of their 
um, childbirth experience, they won't thank you. Mm. And it's not so infrequent. In general, it's not infrequent that the women or women complain to me who have very little in the way of clinical uh, tremor. Yeah. Um, but but the shivering is really bothering them. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you have to sort of weigh that up. So the truth is that most of these medications are not used in a prophylactic manner. We sort of realised that. Um, we should probably just hold back because uh, and, and unless someone gets moderate or severe shivering and complains about it, what's causing a problem, then we treat it. Yes. Except for intrathecal fentanyl, which I think is pretty low low risk because it actually helps the block, doesn't it? Exactly. It's um, part of our routine care. Yeah. And if intravenous on Dancitron would work, that would have been a good one too. Yes. But it didn't seem to help in our setting. Um, so that's the prevention versus treatment. So usually what happens is that actually most of the time we don't use a med- pharmacological medi- medication to, to treat the shivering until it's um, until we think it's likely that the benefit's going to outweigh any possible adverse effects, which include sedation, nausea, um, possibly like hallucination or that sort of thing for some of the medications like ketamine. Um, most yeah. often I see medicines administered... Uh, uh, as treatment in recovery mm. in the post-anesthetic care unit. Yeah, so patients waking up after GA often <coughs> lose heat during their general anesthetic and then when they wake up, they recover the ability to shiver. So their temperatures, if it's if they've lost a lot of heat, you know, 35, 6 or something like that, and they will start shivering a lot. Mm, it's probably better they shiver, isn't it? If it's going to warn them Possibly. Up. But mm. they, it is distressing and we can, as long as the recovery nurses... Um, or recovery staff realise that they can put a bear hugger on and warm them up that way rather than rather than letting them shiver and smash all their teeth. <laughs> yes. Uh, lose all their fillings. Yes. <laughs> a bit. Um, so, yeah, so that's basically how you should think about it, I guess, is frame it in your mind. Um, so there are some non-pharmacological things you can do. Warm, yeah. the, warm the patient before yeah. you start. That's, that's right. been sh- demonstrated to make a difference, I believe. Yeah, so this is pretty much um, most. So most of this is related to the um, hypothermia-related shivering, mm. a- and then and uh, we'll mention the neuraxial solution stuff as well. So you can do some. You can try and warm up the stuff you inject into their back. Yeah, I, I do that when I'm um, topping up an epidural. Yeah, I do. As soon that. as I get it, I start uh, using whatever mechan- method I can to get the solution yeah, so I warmer. Walk, I walk around with it in my hand. Mm. And I'm usually my hand is usually sort of body temperature because. Uh, it's not usually like freezing in in, in a theatre environment, so I'm not feeling cold. But um, uh, usually the solution feels cold, though. Yeah, it does. Mm. And recently, I think you know the lignocaine with adrenaline that we had, we uh, the traditional supply we have, we were allowed to store that on the shelf, so it's 21 degrees. Mm. But for a period of time, I think it was about six months, we had to get some some stock from Germany, and they they said that we had to store it in the fridge. So they were. There was times where we would get a woman who coming up from label emergency caesarean and we'd have to go and get this stuff out of the fridge and it'd be four degrees it's Celsius. It's quite cold, yes. And you inject 20 mils of four degrees Celsius in someone's back, they shiver. Mm. And um, so I was t- teaching all the registrars, I was saying, you know, as soon as you know you're going to have to top someone up, go and get it out of the fridge and just walk around with it in your hand, mm. try and get it warm uh, before they get here. Um and uh, we did an interesting study. I think some of the pharmacists helped Kevin Chan, one of our colleagues here, do a study looking at the stability of um, of the other solution, um, the lignocaine with adrenaline, in, in the warming closet, which is 37 degrees. And they, I can't remember. It was just like a preliminary thing. We didn't do a clinical study. We just 
stored some in a warming cupboard they for, looked at for the a period of time. And look at the stability of the, of the lignocaine and the adrenaline yeah, and they in, a, in a hotter it, environment. I think I have to ask Kevin, so don't quote me on this, but I think it was like three or four weeks, and it was still mm. it was still fine after that. But so, so I guess theoretically, we, the, the sensible thing to do would be to do a study looking at that. We haven't done that yet. Um, so the other things you can do, yeah, like like you're saying, warm the patient, warm the IV fluids. So don't give them cold fluids. Like down, most of the fluids down label are just kept in the cupboard. Mm. So that's like 21 degrees. But up here in theatre, well, we use stuff that's in the warming closets, 37 degrees. And when it comes out, it's about 34. Yeah. Yeah. So that's not going to make them hypothermic. Mm. Um, degrees. See. We put. Mm. We all we all know about this stuff. We put warm blankets on them. Um, yeah. Well, I think that's, those are the main things. So we've talked about. Um, I, I had a um, case with Yelena Hoppy, who's com- coming back to work with us soon. At Osmond Park many years ago, where she put her hand on the, this patient's head, um, just just to sort of reassure her, and the shivering just like disappeared. <laughs> and then she, and then she took her hand off, and the shivering started up again. So I made her stand there for thirty minutes, like like we uh, in the olden days when you used to make. Your, yeah, as a child, you had to stand next to the black and white TV holding on to the aerial <laughs> so the reception was okay for the rest of the family. <laughs> You're not suggesting it's super tentorial? <laughs> no, but I'm sure that um, it's like when you, you, when you hurt yourself and you rub it. You, yes. You rub your arm. It takes away. Mm. I'm sure that um, the sensory input of having someone touching you on the head was somehow stopping that reflex. That's that, um, I don't know, I don't know how to explain it, but it worked. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so poor Elaine, she had to stand there and chat to her about her f- dog and her family and stuff for 30 minutes while I, while I wandered around chatting to everyone else and doing the chart. Perhaps we should give uh, all patients beanies. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Anyway, that, or maybe we just get a mannequin hand from the uh, yeah. from uh, from David My- uh, um, What's the shop? <laughs> David Jones. David Jones. I was David Meyer, but that's not right. <laughs> Meyer Jones. <laughs> you can see how often I go to the shops. Mm. I only go to Bunnings. All right, <laughs> pharmacological prevention. So I think we've talked a lot. 25 minutes, Jesus Christ, shut up, Rog. Okay, um, maybe we should just like summarise. So I sum- so summarised like... Are you going to talk like, about some more issues with respect to shivering? Um, have you got any in yet? No. No, I haven't. I, I, look, I, I, I think, patients I, I think the like most it. important thing is, um, I, look, I, I, try, I try to tell each patient that it could happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when it happens, I try my best to reassure them. Yeah, and also their partners. Yeah, and that um, can take quite a bit of effort sometimes, uh, but I haven't found an ideal pharmacological agent. Yeah, you've stolen my glory. But I think you did that during my do- talk. Too. But I'm so glad that Dr. <laughs> Hoppy has um, taught me a new thing today. Yeah, because I've tried it I might try that next time. I've tried it on other people and it doesn't work. Oh, right. I don't know what it is and what it was that time. There was some some magic in the air. But anyway, Heal, it's healing hands. <laughs> um, what was I going to say? So, she, I know she listens to these podcasts. She's, so, um, um, thanks, Elena, for um, for helping me out all those many years ago. <laughs> um, so I was going to, yeah, I was just going to summarise the way I approach it. So I did have to look up, like, um, I'm not going to go into lots of detail about studies and the numbers needed to treat and all that sort of stuff because there, there is lots of studies out there looking at all the different drugs that we've mentioned giving them in different ways, you know, can you, if you put it in the spinal solution or if you give it epidurally or IV, um, and there's a whole tables and papers and review articles. So that's quite complicated. If anyone's interested, they uh, wants to know about a specific agent that they've, that they could look that up themselves, I guess. But basically they all, they all work, but then once again, you've got to balance it against the efficacy. 
the ones this is my approach anyway and, 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 and I'm sure that people will discover get you know do some more studies and discover a bit more um, accurate data about what's what's better than others but at the moment um, these are the things that I think are a useful way of approaching it is that um, the only things that I think are useful for preventing shivering is like you know making sure you have fentanyl in your spinal and doing all those non-pharmacological things um, there is one study that looked at epidural pethidine and that suggested that maybe that helped, 25 milligrams, but I don't use much pethidine nowadays, mm. so I, I wouldn't go for that. So, so I'm, were, they I'm putting, it. were they placing spinal blocks and so this was immediately a, This was patients having an epidural top-up for a season. Okay, yeah. 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 And so the other thing, intrathecal sufentanil works for those people who work in jurisdictions overseas that mm-hmm. use that instead of fentanyl. Um, so that is uh, similar, I believe. Um, I guess if you didn't have intrathecal fentanyl or sufentanil, you, sh- you should think about giving an intravenous 5-HT3 antagonist because mm-hmm. there's some evidence for that. And then basically um, for treatment, there's sort of um, two or three drugs that I think are sort of uh, are fairly um, um, attractive in that they seem to be slightly better at treating it than others, although none of them, to be honest, are perfect. Uh, and sometimes when you give them the treatment, you know, n- it often gets a lot better but doesn't go away if that makes sense mm. so they might be shaking uncontrollably and then they just have a little bit of tremor um, and that is tramadol, pethidine and the new one on the block so I'm sort of softly recommending that because I don't think there's only been one study but there's always enthusiasm for new things is dexmedimetomidine um, but I'll, so I'll go through the pros and cons at the moment I think tramadol is probably the easiest uh, most accessible and probably has the best profile, so 20 to 40 milligrams of tramadol slowly, doesn't usually cause a lot of sedation. Occasional people might get nauseous with that with tramadol, but in that small dose given slowly, it's pretty rare. So IV, yeah, IV, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, pethidine, a lot of the others, probably the traditional one, isn't it? I mm. think most people have used over the years, and so that's probably the most familiar one. You know, doses of 25 or 30 of pethidine intravenously every, you know probably the most common thing that people have used. That does make you a bit drowsy, and, but it works pretty well, I think. Or it's as, you know, as good as these other ones. And dexmedimetomidine, uh, there was one study of IV dexmedimetomidine in um, Montreal, and they used 30 mics, which is a big dose, um, and they showed really exciting results. I've used it maybe 10 times, um, and it's worked... Uh, to some degree in six or seven out of the ten patients, I think, and there are a few that hasn't really seemed to show much benefit. Okay. It was really useful in a few patients who are super anxious. Um, obviously, the downsides are just like you'd expect because it is pretty much like clonidine. It'll mm. make you drowsy and it can lower your blood pressure and lower your heart rate a bit. So if someone's super anxious, hypertensive and shivering, it's a good option Yes, because they get less anxious. Less and, hypertensive. Um, you're not worried about hypotension mm. too much. Um, and uh, it will stop the shivering. So that, uh, I had a patient like that, uh, I remember, a few months ago, and it worked really well. And it doesn't have as much... Um, it does still last a couple of hours, and people, some people are sensitive to those alpha-2 agonists and can get pretty drowsy. So mm. I was, and I've only used 15 mics because I think 30 mics is a big dose. Mm. Um, the other thing that I do when I use the tramadol, which is what I use most often, and I only use... I, first of all, I just do what you do, Graham. I just explain it to the to them why they're shivering, tell them that it'll probably get better, put on a warm blanket and just try and reassure them. Mm. I think that's 
you don't ha- I don't give everyone drugs because I, I don't think most people need any medications. But if you know, I do move to a medication, that's I usually go to tramadol now. Mm. Um, but I also like um, I try to um, amplify the efficacy of the medication by it's not a placebo effect, but I, th- I think it's like I think it's called a I could be wrong. Psychologist out there might pull me up on this called framing. So I talk it up basically. Yes, it's like, I hip- say to them, like hypnotism. Yeah, so I say I've gonna, I'm going to give you a medication to stop the shivering. It's really good. It probably won't get rid of it completely, but it's going to make it heaps better. Uh, you, but just be patient. It sometimes takes a few minutes to kick in. Mm. Mm. <clears throat> maybe hypnotism. And I just think maybe that hypnotism so would there, work. I think Did you study does. that? I think framing, like if you tell someone something's going to work really well, mm. it usually does, even if it doesn't, if that makes sense. Because they will just like go, he told me it's going to be good. Yeah. And so they'll go, oh, yeah, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I think it's really useful to, to do that, not just for um, shivering, but I do it for like when I'm injecting local anaesthetic and things like that. Too. All things, all things. Yeah. Um, I think a, a positive element within communication is helpful. Yeah. If you're like a healthcare worker, you know, um, you know, like a one of us, like a doctor or you know, a recovery nurse or just anyone who's administering a treatment to someone, and you go, ah, oh, I'm going to give you this, but it's going to sting, and you know, sometimes it doesn't work, and sometimes it. You, you're sort of shooting yourself in the foot, exactly, because <laughs> they because most most people are very trusting and believe you, and um, and if you talk something down, then it often doesn't work as well as if you talk it up. Yeah, and it's true that the techniques that work well in your hands, uh, they work well because the patient can sense the vibe exactly uh, from you that you think it's great. <laughs> yes, and afterwards you can still believe it. Yeah, that's right. And mm. you go, oh, well, it doesn't always work. <laughs> This is real evidence-based medicine, guys. Turn close, block your ears. No. no, I think it's legitimate to use that because um, mm. um, that's a legitimate technique. Yeah, I think so. Patients mm. appreciate it. Um, so, in summary, empathy, warm blankets and fluids and solutions. Um, don't use medications too much, uh, but if you do, um, tramadol or pethidine or maybe dexmedimetomidine are useful. There's probably other ones that people can use as well, but just for just way up in your mind the pros and cons of this adverse effects, you know. Um, so if you've got a patient who's having an orthopedic procedure and who's elderly and doesn't mind being com- completely zonked out and sedated while the while the saw is going in the hammer and they're getting their hip replaced, you know, then then a bit of um, over sedation with ketamine is probably okay. Mm. <laughs> um, any comments? No. Why was the baby jalapeno shivering? I don't know, Roger. Or jalapeno. <laughs> Why was the jalapeno sh- shivering? It was a little chilly. Oh, it was a little chilly. <laughs> <laughs> I used to be addicted to soap, but now I'm clean. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't dear. believe it took us 34 minutes and 19 seconds to get to the jokes. Have you got any for me? I don't think so. I've no, got yeah. I've got some, but yeah. I think I've used them before. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's getting to the point where I actually think I should write down which ones I've said because I'm scared I'm going to start repeating them and then I sound like I've got Alzheimer's. I think I've told you about my addiction to the hokey pokey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you managed to turn yourself around. around yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit similar to the other one. <laughs> okay. I think we might call it quits there. Yeah, thanks, um, Roger. Thanks to everyone who helped with the Oscar study and uh, Yelena Hoover uh, taught us something new. <laughs> Okay, cheers.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Please go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it. Write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.opsandguinecritcare.org where there'll be lots of show notes and links to uh, interesting videos related to the topic that you've just listened to. See you again next time.